Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies, and today we're going to talk all things cervixes. I have Carly Nettle and Allie Ferroa. I probably should have asked them how to pronounce their names before I recorded this. And they're the hosts of Birth Queens Podcast, a weekly show that delivers in-depth information about pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health in a lighthearted and fun way. Carly is a midwife and hormone specialist, and Allie is a birth and postpartum doula and photographer. Between them, they've attended nearly a thousand births and have over 20 years of experience in helping families navigate the journey of pregnancy, birth, and beyond. And I've been listening to Birth Queens, and these ladies are a hoot, and I, I just adore listening to them. So I reached out and I said, hey, will you come on Yoga Birth Babies? And they said yes. And it was just so much fun talking to them. And we're going to talk about the cervix, mainly about the cervix before labor, during labor. Do you need to check it? What are cervical exams? What are they looking to do? It's a really fun conversation, and these wonderful people have amazing information to give. Before we jump into that, by the time you're listening to this, we would have moved into our new yoga space in the Upper West Side. Woohoo! for us. It's been a couple months in the works of planning and we're finally doing it. So we're opening on the 16th of September. I'm so excited. And I want to say a very deep hearted thank you. The community has really stepped up. I started an I Fund Women crowdfunding campaign and I am blown away by the generosity of our PYC community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I truly could not have done this without your generous contributions. And the iFund Women crowdfunding campaign is still on for two more weeks. You can find it on our website, prenatalyogacenter.com, or go to iFund Women and look for Prenatal Yoga Center. So thank you. Truly, this could not have happened without you. Also, what could not happen without you is this podcast. So please take a moment, if you're enjoying what you're listening to, leave a rating or review wherever you're listening to it. And then last little blurb of information I want to share is we're starting the New York teacher training very soon. I'm incredibly excited. We have a wonderful group of people. It was a packed group. We had a wait list. Um, so I'm excited to meet with those that we're going to work with. And then pretty soon we're starting Charlotte, North Carolina, and then Washington, D.C. is getting very limited with space on how much we can fit into our teacher training. It's really starting to fill. Um, and then we'll be back in New York in the spring and then back to Richmond, Virginia in the late spring. So a lot of opportunities to work with myself and Caprice, but they are filling. So if you want to deepen your practice as a yoga teacher and start studying prenatal yoga, please check it out. If you're a yoga teacher that your passion is not prenatal yoga, but you just want to have the skills to work with the pregnant student that shows up in your class, check out Who's Afraid of the Pregnant Yogi. It's an online course specifically for the yoga teacher that might freak out when a pregnant student comes in and ignoring that student is not the answer. So I give you some help with that, some guidance. Okay. That was enough of me talking. We'll take a super quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Carly and Allie. It's a great conversation. Enjoy. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Carly and Allie. How are you today? Hi. We're, we're doing so great. We're great. We're so happy to be here with you. Yay. Thank you. As I was telling you before we started recording, I love listening to Birth Queens. You guys are a hoot. And I can tell you are probably super <laughs> good friends. So and it just feels like I'm just checking in a conversation with two good pals talking, which is exactly what I think podcasts should be. So thank you for putting that out in the birthing world. Thank you. Oh, it's such course. a nice compliment. That's totally our goal with it is like, because we are pretty much how we are on the show. Yeah. <laughs> how we are with each other. And... Probably a little less censored even. Yeah. <laughs> on the show? Yeah. A little. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, no, 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 no in, in person. Sure. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, We listen. keep it together Who is a little it? Yeah. bit more on the show. <laughs> Which good. would come as a surprise to many people. <laughs> yeah. That's how my co-teacher Trini and I are. We are very kind of like boppity bop right back and forth. And yeah. people are like, you guys like a two-woman show. I'm like, we are. Yeah. <laughs> That's the goal here. It turns out. This so, is entertaining. I I am beyond excited to talk about cervixes or cervixi. I don't know what the plural is. But. <laughs> Cer- cervices? cervices? I don't know even how you say it. I should. I'm a midwife. Right? I should know. But yeah, I, I'm usually only talking about a cervix in the singular. Right. And so I- But now we're talking I, about many cervixes. Yeah. But there are a lot of things like uteruses. We just call them uteruses instead of yeah. uteri, cervixes. Yeah. yeah. It's just, there's there's like the official way and then there's- There's the regular just, way. Yeah, how we're all going to say it. How we all talk about it. So I listened to the podcast you did about this and I was walking down Broadway at like a 30 block walk and I'm listening. I'm like, yes, yes. And people were, I was like saying this out loud and people were looking at me like, who's the crazy person? So immediately yeah. I'm like, okay, we got to, we have to dive into this. So this is so exciting. So I guess before we get into the whole world of survive, cervixes, plural, um, <laughs> if you wouldn't mind just telling me a little bit about yourselves and what you both, how you both got started in this work. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. This is Allie and I am the doula half of this, um, pair and I've been, I'm a, I'm a birth doula and a postpartum doula. And I also do, um, photography, newborn birth, family photos. And I got started, I've been attending births for like six and a half, a little over six years. And I always joke that it was like an accident that I became, like got into birth work. I was the kid who like would pass out and throw up when I got my blood drawn. Like I did not want to talk about bodies or know about bodies. Like I just, I was. Didn't even want to exist in your body. Nope. Was a weird, (laughs) not weird, but just an anxious child who like did not, wasn't interested in that. And, um, I happened to, I even to the point where I saw my mom have a baby when I was 14, my youngest sister. And I was like, I mean, I'm obsessed with her, but that was horrible. Like, I <laughs> I can't believe you guys let me be here. Um, and just, I just wasn't prepared is what it was. Um, but fast forward to, I'd graduated college. I'd moved to San Diego, went to school, graduated and was like sitting on my couch looking for a job. And I happened to, I was also, while I was looking for a job, just like eating and watching Netflix, like you do. And I watched the documentary, The Business of Being Born, Mm -hmm. which really opened my eyes to the state of maternity care in America. And 
it was kind of the thing that lit a fire in me. I was just fascinated. And I picked up a book by Ina Mae Gaskin, who's interviewed in that film. And for the next year, I like couldn't get enough information. And, um, luckily I did find another job shortly thereafter, but I spent the next year ish year and a half, like reading and learning everything I could. And, um, met somebody who was a doula who knew of a volunteer program and it all just kind of fell into place. And and so I became a volunteer doula at first and then eventually quit that other job and did this full time. And here we are. So it's been really amazing. And Carly, and then also how you guys ended up working together. So let's <laughs> yeah, yeah, Carly, tell us about yourself. <laughs> uh, well, uh, my name is Carly. I am the midwife side of Half the this. duo. And, uh, I went to my first birth 20 years ago when I started midwifery school. It was, it was almost a year after I'd started midwifery school. Uh, but I got interested in it because my mom had had a couple of home births. Um, there's, there are eight kids in my family and the first six of us were born in the hospital and the last two were born at home. And my mom was always like, oh, I wish I'd had everyone at home. It was so great. Midwives are so awesome. And so I was just raised thinking this is what everybody wants is to have <laughs> a baby at home. I mean, I was also raised thinking everyone wanted to have eight kids or maybe like 12 and they fell short by the school, like, you know, by four kids. But, uh, but that was just how I got into it. It was just kind of blindly. Like when I was 17, my mom was like, why don't you be a midwife? And I was like, that's a great idea. Yeah. I'm going to be a midwife. And so I just walked into it like that. So I started midwifery school when I was 19 and, you know, started going to birth, started studying and started my own practice. Eventually I did a lot of internships. I did a lot of apprenticeships. I mean, yeah, it wasn't as inspiring as Allie's story. I just dumbly walked into it. That's not true. Hello, midwifery. Here I am. (laughs) I love your story because it's like not everybody is a lot for a lot of people. It's a calling, but it isn't always. And you don't have to be like, Oh, I was struck by lightning with this, like calling toward birth work. Like, I don't know. I think that's an important message for what it's worth. I I agree. I think a lot of people want it to become more normal, more mainstream, not like a calling to be a midwife, but I think I was between the two of you. I was teaching prenatal because honestly, it comes back to my mother again. Kind of like you just said, your mom. My mom's yeah, like, totally. why don't you teach the prenatal population? You know, someone's always going to be pregnant. I'm like, oh, okay. Like it just, yeah. and, then, and then I fell in love with the birth advocacy of it um, after seeing hospital births. But yes, yeah, sometimes it's a calling. Sometimes it's a mere suggestion. And I like that for uh, Carly and I, it's by our mothers. <laughs> Why did totally. you look at that? <laughs> so my how- mom, meanwhile, is a was a labor and delivery nurse and lactation oh, wow. consultant for years. And she was like, you want to do what? Like, <laughs> you are not going to. I don't know about that. So, <laughs> Well, they're long hours. Doula work and, and midwifery work, they're very long hours. It's very physical. I don't think people always realize that. So what brought the two of you together? A fateful car ride to one of our mutual clients' homes. Was that? Okay, well, we first, like, Passed, met in passing at a birth at a birth center in town yep. where she worked, and I was a volunteer doula. And then but it was so brief. It, it was, was so brief. Like yeah. I got there as the couple was transferring. Hi, Ali. Bye, yeah. Ali. Like they were just walking yeah. out the door. And then we, yeah, met a, a mutual client. It was that car ride, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And it was a long car ride. It was yeah. about 45 minutes and we laughed the whole way there yeah. and the whole way back. And then we were like, oh my gosh, let's be friends. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
And then I think later that year, I had taken some classes and I came to Allie and was like, what if we started a podcast? And foolishly, she said yes. (laughs) She regrets it every day. (laughs) But yeah, this, this, our whole thing was definitely Carly's brainchild. And, but it did just start off. Like we had a couple births together that summer and we like, I don't, I, we, I don't know if we can speak for the people giving birth, but we had a great time. <laughs> we had a great time. Yeah, it was amazing. So here we are a couple years later. Like, how can we work together all the time? Yeah. We can't go to births all the time together because people don't always hire us, but yep. we could do this together. So here we are. Oh, it's great. And I appreciate the work that you guys do. So, all right, let's jump in the talk of cervix. So let's go super, super basic because I don't always know who the audience is. Let's talk about where and what the cervix is and why is some, why is it something a care provider puts focus on? Well, I love this question because so many people are unaware of their own physical anatomy, especially when it comes to the cervix and the female reproductive system Mm -hmm. because it's so hidden and internal and people that have a vagina are usually only familiar with like their vagina and like the labia. Uh, But the cervix is at the end of the vagina and it is the lower segment of the uterus. So the uterus is a little pear-shaped organ with the cervix at the bottom and it's, it's a, it has a hole in it. And so that's what opens when you have your period, when your blood comes out. And the reason that it matters in labor is because a baby can't come out of a closed cervix. It has to open in order for the baby to be able to come out through the vagina. So that's why it matters. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's start talking about dilation. So I feel like that kind of gets the, the main shining focus. Can you talk about other parts of of labor one would want to uh, consider and other factors besides just dilation? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you're, and you're so right. There's, I feel like whenever we're talking about the cervix, especially in labor or even at the end of pregnancy before labor, the only thing you're really ever hearing about is, well, how far dilated are you? Mm -hmm. And that's measured in centimeters. You're, you know, closed is zero centimeters dilated all the way up to 10 centimeters dilated, which is considered completely dilated or completely open. Um, but there's actually five different things that when a provider does an internal cervical exam or pelvic, you know, vaginal exam, what they're assessing, and they're all an important part of the picture. So in addition to just dilation, which is how small or, you know, wide or open that, that opening is, they're also feeling for the ripeness of the cervix. So how soft or firm it is and an unripe cervix or like our cervixes sitting here right now are nice and hard and firm, like the tip of your nose, whereas a ripe cervix or one that is ready for labor or in labor is really soft and squishy, like your cheek, which I'm like doing the thing where I touch my nose <laughs> and my cheek right now. You guys can't see me. It's like you're testing for how done is my hamburger? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, so there's the ripeness, there's the position of the cervix. So pre-labor, and sometimes even into early labor, but especially pre-labor, the direction that the cervical opening is pointed is that changes throughout the labor process. So it starts off pointing in the posterior direction or pointed a little bit toward your back or your butt. And as labor progresses, I should say sometimes in labor, sometimes before labor, your cervix will shift to be more um, like midline and then eventually an anterior cervix. So it's more in line with the vaginal canal, the vaginal opening. 
Um, Making a straight shoot for the yeah, baby to travel down. Totally. Um, and that is an important note. People, I'm sure we'll get into like cervical exams before labor mm-hmm. starts a little bit later, but the position of the cervix makes a big difference for how comfortable or, or intense a cervical exam can be. And usually before labor, that opening is really pointed back, which means it's often hard to reach or hard to feel. So something to keep in mind. Um, but the other, the other two things are effacement. So how thick or thin a cervix is, if it's 0% effaced, that means it's nice and thick. So is it usually about about four centimeters long? Okay. Yeah. And then as you progress in effacement, it gets thinner and thinner up into the point of a hundred percent effaced when they say it's it's basically like paper thin. Yeah. Teeny tiny. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing is the station of the baby. So that's less cervical, cervix, cervical, cervix centric. Um, but it's still a really important part of like how high or low they are in your pelvis. So that's like the full picture. And that's way more than just how open your cervix is. Yeah. Well, you can, you can glean even a little more information from doing a pelvic exam like that when someone is in labor, because once the cervix is open enough, you can also determine is, is the bag in front, you know, like mm-hmm. is the, is the, the, bag, bulge, of yeah, the bag of waters, is it intact? Is it in front? Because some people are going to want to rupture that to get labor to move along, you know, mm-hmm. so that's going to be another important piece of information you can get from it. And when the cervix is open far enough, you can also sometimes feel the baby's suture lines. So the suture lines, it's the space in between the bones of the baby's skull and being able to feel those sutures can tell you where in the pelvis the baby's head is positioned, which is really important. So if the baby's head is posterior, so it's the back of the baby's head is facing the the tailbone, um, that's a bad position for the baby. And if you can determine- can make it more difficult for labor to progress. Yeah. Usually every once in a while, someone has a great pelvis to accommodate a baby Mm -hmm. who's in a posterior position. 99.9% of the time that is not the case. And it causes a lot of back labor, which is more painful than having just regular old contractions. And it can make it really hard to push. It can make it hard to push the baby out effectively because it's, it's not, the pelvis is not generally meant for a baby to come through it in a posterior position. Like if I had, if we were doing video right now and I had my little, like, (laughs) like my little demo doll and my little demo pelvis, I could show you how much easier it is for a baby to fit through the pelvis if it's going through with the head facing the anterior. So, um, so that's another thing that we look at too, because if we can confirm that the baby's head is asynclitic, so cocked off to the side, or if it's posterior, or if it's in a good position, then that helps us determine what positions we'd like the the parent, the birthing parent to get into so that we can uh, work with that position and change it to get a more efficient labor. Absolutely. I love everything you said, and I, I totally agree with it. And I think we want to encourage our pregnant students to know that there's more than just dilation, especially, I love that you check out the suture lines because I've been to many a birth where I ask baby position. I've actually been told by a couple of doctors like, oh, it doesn't matter. And then I feel like a big <laughs> fool because I'm oh. like, we got to talk about baby position. You know, like <laughs> where's the spine? So the fact that you're looking for that as a midwife, because we know if the baby's better positioned, it's going to be a more functional birth. So Absolutely. yeah, and there are things you can do to encourage like different positions for the birthing person to oh, take absolutely. that kit 
adjust or change or impact how a baby in, you know, navigates the pelvis. So that's Mm -hmm. part of our job as people, I think it is, people who are attending births and supporting births, despite what some doctors or care providers Mm -hmm. might think. Well, I think bringing that up is smart because it's important to note that not all care providers are the same. And to some doctors, it really doesn't matter because they are not attached to you having a vaginal birth or a cesarean birth and they can do a cesarean. So to them, it's like, well, if this baby's not going to come out of your vagina, I am happy to cut it out for you. And like, that's, they don't have any kind of emotional attachment to that. And so, you know, not every care provider is going to look for that, but absolutely it impacts the ability of the baby to get through your pelvis. And then for the birthing person to ask more than just, okay, what's my dilation, but even say like, what's the station, how, you know, how high low that baby is. Uh, And then again, where, where is the baby? Because then if the care provider may not offer, all right, baby's asynclitic, let's try A, B, and C, which they likely aren't, unless it's a midwife that I've seen. Um, Mm -hmm. at least maybe the person that's birthing could come prepared knowing, okay, if I find out the baby's, you know, posterior asynclitic, I can do, you know, all these options. So if they come prepared, that information from the cervical exam could help them instead of just leaving them like, all right, now what do I do? So I'm so Mm -hmm. glad you touched upon that. So I guess useful information for a doula as well. Cause I mean, someone who's in labor is generally not in the mindset of I'm going to manage my own labor. If it's really intense, you know, they shouldn't be, but they they really shouldn't be. And, and at a certain point they really are not able to, you know, if you're uh, maybe with an epidural, but if you are, you know, drug free and you're doing this and you're in transition, it's so so overwhelming and you cannot even think about anything except for how am I going to get through this contraction? Like breathe, breathe, breathe. And so, I mean, ideally everyone would have someone with them who could advocate and who could help them into positions. And there are getting to be more and more, uh, delivery nurses who are taking spinning babies and are aware of what different positions and stretches you can do to help the baby into a better position. But it's, it's not something to count on from a labor and delivery nurse because they change every 12 hours too. Yeah. Well, the ones here in this city, in New York City, they're covering two or three rooms at a time. So they're certainly not um, giving one-on-one attention. And I, mm-hmm. I guess I was thinking like the majority of, I'd say a good, maybe half of my students have a doula and the other half rely on their partner and and themselves <laughs> to get through this. So hopefully they can then share yeah. this information with their partner and maybe have taken some sort of support course ahead of time about what this information can mean and how that could then help them in their birth. But I guess also we need to talk about what is a cervical exam? We've talked about what they want to find out, but can yeah. you, one of you talk about what is a cervical exam and how is it given? Um, so cervical exam is when your care provider puts a couple of fingers into the vagina to the cervix and then using our middle and and pointer finger, we measure how open the cervix is, you know, kind of feel around. It can take a few minutes. It's not just a quick, like zoop in, zoop Mm -hmm. out. Like you have to feel around because sometimes the cervix is very confusing. Sometimes it dilates unevenly. Sometimes it's extremely posterior and the front part of it is so thin that you you can't really feel like, is this person fully dilated? Where's the cervix? Do they even have a cervix? What's going on? <laughs> um, so it can take a couple of minutes just to fully assess, especially if you're trying to feel the suture lines on the baby's head, that can take a little bit longer. So it, it can take up to a few minutes to do it. Um, you know, it depends. 
the comfort level of your exam depends on a few things, like how gentle your care provider is, how big their hands are. I have teeny tiny elfin <laughs> hands, and usually it's no big deal for me to do a cervical exam, but that's how it's done. Okay. And I should, I would like to add into that it, uh, so how these things are measured is certainly taught in a somewhat standard way, but it's a bit subjective. So mm-hmm. If you get it, as much as possible, I think that there's a huge benefit to having the same person perform your cervical, your, you know, if you're getting more than one cervical exam, especially in labor and, you know, we don't all always have control over that because of shift change or whatever, but if possible to have the same person do the exam, there's benefit in that because everybody's like feels, what am I trying to say? They what, don't what go up there with a the protractor. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's very subjective. So if the, same, yeah, if the same person does it, they can just say like, oh, this feels different than the last time I felt this person's cervix. So because yeah. the differences could be subtle. Totally. Yeah. Great. Yeah. In labor, usually they like to do a cervical exam at the hospital every four hours. Some hospitals, it's every two. I mean, there's a really wide range of what's normal yeah. based on the hospital and the provider. It used to be that it was every two hours that they like to give a cervical exam just to see what the progress is like. And now there are quite a few hospitals here, at least where, you know, especially if your water is broken before you get to the hospital or if your water is broken at all, period, they only want to do it every four hours unless it seems like, Okay, well the baby's coming out now, so yeah, know, maybe something we should, like, drastic. Yeah, changes. maybe we should check and see if you're fully dilated. What about the idea? And I'm kind of jumping around in some of these questions I prepped, but what about the idea of declining a cervical exam and also just even when making sure someone gives consent to having a cervical yeah, exam? That's yeah. a huge thing. No, it can be a real issue. One of my clients told me that uh, with her first birth, she was getting induced at the hospital and she was in the middle of the induction. She wasn't having contractions yet. And she was asleep and her care provider came in while she was asleep and actually she was asleep and her care provider put her hand into her vagina while she was asleep. She woke up to somebody... Which is, it's sexual assault. I mean, it's, it's, so there's some really shady things that happen there. And I mean, she didn't have time to consent or not. Like that was, um, that's, it's something that happens in the hospital more frequently than it should. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you absolutely can decline. Um, you know, Mm -hmm. for me personally, it would depend, like as a, as a care provider, understanding the value of an exam, you know, some people just want an exam because they want to know what, what's happening? You know, they mm-hmm. want to know, like, I've been having all these really strong contractions. I've been doing all this work on the baby's position. Yeah. I want to see like, did, did all of this effort result in some kind of change? Did the baby come down a little bit? Is the baby's position different? You know, what's going on. And so, um, you know, by all means, people can decline or they can just decline to know what their cervical exam resulted in. Hmm. Um, that's helpful for some people. And so, yeah, it's something to talk to your care provider about. Um, some care providers are, are kind of bully-ish about it. Yeah. Um, I've had some clients that I've had to transfer to the hospital where they've declined verbally and the doctor's like, we have to, sorry. And they just do it anyway. So yeah. there's in my, my experience from seeing lots of home births and hospital births is that typically unless, and this, this is just for like our little bubble here in San Diego, my experience at all the hospitals I've been to around town is that unless you, you can always decline anything certainly, but unless you are walking into the hospital in labor with a baby coming out of you, 
they're usually not going to want to admit you or do anything else procedure-wise until they've done that baseline exam to see where you're at in labor. Um, so it's uh, like I've had some some moms in the past who were really nervous or had a history of abuse and the cervical exam thing was really scary for them. And the, you know, possibility was upsetting and their hope was to get an epidural before they had an exam. And that hasn't been uh, successful in my experience. Like most providers, I've had the same thing at the, in New York that people want to know the hospital wants to know what the baseline is. They don't want to admit someone at one centimeter, even though they might be presenting like it's more intense. Yeah. They they'll tell you to you know lovingly maybe not lovingly but they'll tell you to yeah, go walk around. <laughs> and it's I think that's important. I know it can be so hard to hear when you're like working hard in labor and things are intense, but it's your first baby, and you get to the hospital and maybe you're three centimeters. If the goal is uh, a low intervention birth baby and birthing person are both healthy and low risk, the best thing is to go back home or keep laboring before being admitted. Like if you can get to active labor, which is considered six centimeters before you check in at the hospital, that's amazing because your chances of intervention, of labor slowing down, of you being kind of forced into a timeline that doesn't fit your body and your baby mm-hmm. are so much lower if you can do that. So I, you know, I think cervical exams can get a bad rap, but you can get some really valuable and arguably essential information, at least from my perspective. And I know Carly feels the same way. Like they should be done constantly, but there is good, helpful information to be gleaned from those. Great. Let's mm-hmm. jump into that because I feel like sometimes I hear everyone's like, no vaginal exams or cervical exams. I feel like, yeah, I agree. There definitely could be information. So let's talk about some justifiably great reasons one may want to have a cervical exam. Yes. Good question. We're big fans of this because there is so we've both read articles of like, you don't need a cervical exam to have a baby. And certainly we've been to births where you didn't like one wasn't required, but I've done plenty of births where it's, I I walk in, it's someone who's had a kid before. Um, you know, obviously labor, labor is progressing. They get to a point where they sound like they're pushing, they start pushing. I'm seeing a baby's head within 20 minutes. Everything's fine. Uh, there are a lot of circumstances under which it is beneficial to get a a cervical exam. I would like to address first that a lot of people think that a cervical exam is just to see when the baby's coming. Um, A lot of people, like the only reason people do cervical exams is because they're impatient and they want to know when the baby's coming out. And that's not going to tell you when the baby's coming out. And it's not. The the reason that I do cervical exams is, am I going to change something about the care that I'm providing and the support? Mm -hmm. And that's not the case for every provider. Every provider is different. And some people are just going to check out of curiosity. I'm not speaking for everyone, but that doesn't change the fact that these are very useful for a lot of people. So, um, one of the times that I think it's really important is, um, I don't know, sometimes it actually just change, changes people's ability to cope with their labor. So I've I've gotten calls from people where it was like a third-time mom. She called me, I'm pushing, you've got to come quick. I got up there, and she wanted me to do a cervical check, and I did, and she wasn't even in labor. I could tell just from her cervix, it was long, it was closed, it was firm, and uh, I was. And she didn't have the baby until a week later. <laughs> so I was, like, I was like, well, the good news is that you're... Um, not having a baby today. Yeah, um, right. yeah. good the news bad or news bad. Is also that you're not having a baby today. Yeah. And so she, her, her contractions actually stopped after that. They like she was having contractions. She was having contractions yeah. and she's just somebody who has a lot of prodromal labor. So she yeah. was having contractions and, uh, and then they stopped. And so at least she wasn't like 
uncomfortable and she could go throughout the rest of her day because she wasn't in labor. You know, she's just having prodromal labor. Mm -hmm. Um, Another time is, uh, you know, when we're trying to decide, like, you know, should we transfer to the hospital? Um, This is like specifically from the perspective of a home birth care provider. Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Allie's always really good to clarify, (laughs) like, because she goes to both home births and hospital births a lot. And for me, I'm just like home birth centric. Yeah. All I think about, (laughs) except that we do have to go to the hospital sometimes. But anytime you're going to make a big change, like if you're going to get an epidural, you know, some people will be having this labor where it's like, oh gosh, I've been three centimeters for like 15 hours. I want the epidural. And then maybe things have gotten a little more intense and they just assume I'm probably still three centimeters, but then they get a a cervical check before they get the epidural and they're actually 10 centimeters. So, um, you know, labor is not like the dilation of the cervix isn't always linear. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But if I were going to be in the hospital and I was thinking about getting an epidural, I would want to know if I, you know, had suddenly made a leap in progress, you know, like sometimes that happens or, you know, if we were going to get wheeled back for a cesarean, I would want to know for sure. Like one last time, if the reason that we were going was lack of progress, like, you know, it has there been any cervical change, you know, and sometimes that's going to make a difference in what you do. Like one of my clients was planning to have a hospital birth uh, a couple weeks ago and, um, she had been four, three centimeters at her, at her previous exam. And when I got there, this was before labor, no, during labor, it it was during labor. Yeah. So it was like four hours prior and she, I got there and she was like, I just, I need an epidural. I need to get this epidural. And, you know, we kept asking her like, do you want to get a cervical exam first? I mean, your dilation may have changed drastically. She's like, no, no, no. I just want the epidural. As soon as they got the epidural in, she was full, fully dilated, yeah. fully dilated. And so, you know, she may have wanted to complete that without the epidural. I think she was fine with the epidural, but that's a reason why. Um, another big one for me is if people have any scar tissue on their cervix. So if you've had something like a leap procedure from cervical dysplasia, or if you've had, you know, any kind of cryotherapy, yeah. is that what it's called? Right. Where they like freeze off. That is a um, cryotherapy. Yeah. yeah. So if there's any kind of scar tissue on your cervix, it can prevent the cervix from opening in labor unless you massage it. So I've had a few clients where they've had either, um, you know, like a, a, you know, late term, like they, they lost their baby and they had to have their cervix opened to like deliver the baby. Um, you know, something like that. Um, they've had scar tissue where, you know, they're in intense labor, but their cervix isn't dilated at all. And then you just get in there and you massage the scar tissue a a bit, you know, sometimes it's like five minutes, sometimes it's a little bit longer. And then it just suddenly opens up. And most of those clients that I've had, they'll go from like one centimeter or no dilation at all to a baby in, you know, two to four hours because it's, you know, suddenly released it and the cervix can actually do its work. So, you know, that, um, definitely if people are having signs of malposition, like if the babies, uh, if, if they're experiencing back pain during their labor, that's their greatest pain. I definitely want to see what's going on then, because if we can tell that the baby's malpositioned, there's a lot of stuff that we can do specifically for the position the baby's in. Um, another one would be, oh, I just remembered it. And then I just you lost it. it. You lost it. Yeah. Where did it go? Oh, cervical lips. So, yeah. Um, I talk about I, like the urge to push. Yeah. So, so let's say, um, you know, some people have an early urge to push. Like if people have an urge to push, 
Um, sometimes an early urge to push comes from a malposition, like the baby is in a posterior position. So the biggest part of the head is on the back of the uh, vaginal muscles, and that can stimulate uh, this ejection reflex where you want to push and you can't help it. It's like throwing up, but out your vagina. Mm-hmm. And That's so exactly when that what happens, I always call it. I literally say it's like, like throwing, throwing up, up out throw. of your yeah. vagina. <laughs> It is. I've it's never like heard anyone say out that. Of your vagina. Yes, I'm glad that we can agree on that. I think that I, I don't think we're the only ones, Dad. Um, but when that happens, you know, people are having an urge to push, especially if it's a like a, a first time parent, especially if they've had back labor. I really want to check because it is so. I cannot describe the devastation to you of someone who's been told, you know, follow your body, just push if you feel like pushing, and having them push for a couple of hours with no progress, and then finally checking to see that they're only six centimeters and that they've been putting all of this effort into pushing on a closed cervix. That is not helpful for anyone. It is so demoralizing for the person who's in labor. And, um, and it, it can swell the cervix and it can make it even more difficult to have a vaginal delivery. And so that's one of the reasons that I really like to check when people feel the urge to push. Another is that the cervix can be mostly dilated. So, so it's, I can't think of an, of an analogy. I guess if you get like a wonky shaped donut, that's like thinner on one side, <laughs> thicker, and really yeah. fat on the other. It's kind of like that. It's like where... a cervix. It's like, sorry, like, um, uh, lifesaver that you're sucking more on one side than the other. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So it can be like totally thinned out in the back. And usually when there's a lip left from the cervix, it's, it's in the front. So, um, if that's the case that can completely prevent the baby from making any descent. So you're putting all of this hard work and effort into pushing and nothing is happening. Like the baby's not coming down at all. And I see that happen, you know, whether you're a fourth time parent, um, you know, third time mom, a first time mom, um, it, it doesn't can happen. It can time, happen. Yeah. And so for me personally, if someone's already had a baby vaginally before, um, if they haven't delivered the baby in 30 minutes from the start of pushing, then I start to get suspicious because <laughs> you're not going to ruin your cervix by pushing on it for 30 minutes if you're not completely dilated. So, mm-hmm. you know, to avoid doing a, a cervical exam, then a lot of times I'm just like, oh yeah, you know, you're ready to push you mother of three. Great. <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> and then if I don't see the baby in like 20, 30 minutes, then I start to wonder what's going on. Um, but yeah, a lot of times you can just hold the cervix out of the way. Sometimes you can't. And if you can't, you just need to like, you know, have the, the parent labor on like alternating sides, you know, three contractions on your left side, three contractions on your right side, or do some stuff to try to reduce the swelling, like homeopathics or whatever. But, um, yeah, having a cervical exam really, really affects care a lot. I a hundred percent agree. What about those that may, and what are reasons someone may want to opt out of an exam? Yes. Good question. Um, I think that anytime you have a provider who just wants to do an exam because it's been two hours and we do them every two hours or one hour or three hours, like just because solely based on time and not necessarily any change in a labor pattern, that's a time to ask more questions and ask, hey, what information will I glean from this? Has my body had enough time to make any measurable change that this exam is warranted? Um, if your water bag has released, there is an increased risk of infection with every, especially with every vaginal exam you do. And yes, providers use sterile gloves, but it is still something going into your vagina and introducing bacteria. So I like to be very cautious and conservative or, you know, talk to people about being conservative about accepting exams in those cases. Um, 
I've had some situations at like teaching hospitals or where there's somebody learning who the nurse doctor, whoever does the exam, and then they want their student to be able to do an exam right after. So then they can compare notes. And I, and I get that that's for learning. Um, and it's super important for getting new providers kind of trained, but, um, I always tell my people that you don't have to be the one that anyone learns on, um, especially if your water bag is broken, especially if you are unmedicated. And because usually cervical exams are not comfortable. Some people don't mind them, um, but typically they, they're like, you have to almost always lay back, reclined on your back, butterfly your knees open. The more you can like relax and soften those muscles, usually the easier the provider is able to adequately assess everything. So doing that in labor can be really hard. Um, being on your back in in labor can be so painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's very worth mentioning for people who don't have wonderful providers who are patient like Carly here that you can ask that somebody wait until you're done having the contraction and make sure to check in between. I know that like especially in busy hospitals or birthplaces, there's providers who are like, nope, we're doing this on my time right now. Like your magic words are, no, I do not consent to this, or I do not consent right now. I need a minute. So don't be afraid to to use those and, and have them start when you are good and ready. And, um, and then another time, I don't know if you were going to ask this separately, but I think a really great time to decline a cervical exam is before you are in labor. Oh my God. That is my Biggest pet peeve. I can't tell you how many times my students will come in. I've had some even be, I mean, so I get if they're coming in before 37 weeks, maybe they're having contractions. They need to know what's going on, but I've had some at 37 weeks. It's just, it's just what their practice does. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, how is this going to change how they manage the care? If it's just standard, like you're fine to be at 37 weeks with some progression. And gosh, so many of my students either come in overly excited, which makes them anxious. I'm one centimeter or kind of deflated. I'm nothing. I'm closed. Totally. I'm like, that could change within hours. So yeah. It it, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah it I've seen mm-hmm. it. I remember having a doula client. I saw her for prenatal and that was at 10 o'clock. And then by the end of my postnatal, which ended at 1.30, she called me. She's like, you better get over here. Like a couple hours later, yeah. she, had her, she walked into the hospital, threw up on the floor and birthed her baby like an, not even an hour later. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It isn't. Yeah. And I tell, so I, I talk through this a lot with my doula clients and I never tell people like, don't get served. You know, I, I'm just not one to tell people there's no hard and fast, like always do this or never do this. Um, like if you are high risk or you're having lots of early labor or they're worried about, is your cervix staying closed early, early on in pregnancy? then yes, that is a valid time to check and measure and and see how your baby and your body are doing. But if you are healthy and low risk, your cervix is not a crystal ball. It absolutely does not matter where your cervix is at, at 37, 38, 39, 40 weeks until you are in labor. Mm -hmm. Um, And and your dilation pre-labor doesn't have any implications on your labor. Like you can be dilated to three for four weeks before you go into labor and still have a three-day labor. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Which is like, I don't know if we're allowed to swear on this podcast. Go for it. (laughs) Yeah. It's bullshit, right? We get it. That's frustrating. Or you can go from zero to baby in a couple of hours. And this is something that Carly mentioned earlier about cervical exams and labor and how um, some people opt to not know, like the person giving birth will request to not know the results or the numbers associated with the labor exam. And 
I have a lot of families who have really good luck with that if their goal, if they're birthing in a hospital and their goal is a low intervention, unmedicated birth, um, because it helps them. What my you know clients often say is, I just want to know, am I far enough along to be admitted? And am I making progress if there are subsequent exams? And sometimes there's an adjustment to that approach or something happens where, you know, it's helpful for them to know dilation, effacement, station, so that they can make their next best decision. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times it can get in your head. And even though you might know ahead of time logically that labor isn't linear and progress can change in kind of fits and spurts and um, it can still be really hard to not do labor math. Oh, I totally to did out. that. And I was a doula right? for eight years before having my birth. <laughs> yes. And I had been like teaching. Like you even know. I did. And I knew better. And I was still like, okay, it took me this long to get to five. And as I was saying, my I guess I was moving my lips a little. My two lips like, what are mm-hmm. you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I totally was. And I, and I knew better. had Totally. Right. And, and it's okay. Sometimes it's a crapshoot, honestly, like some people find it very encouraging or, or really or like knowing that information and other people find it really demoralizing. Mm-hmm. I had a couple births this last week where it was, uh, the, the, the birth defied expectations in a lot of different ways. It was, um, these two I'm thinking of where it was their second baby both times. And it was just very different than the first and very different than they knew it would be different, but it was different even than how they thought it would be different, <laughs> if that makes sense. And, um, Knowing the numbers, even though we had talked about this can change so fast, especially with your second baby, I feel like I see my second timers or people after your first baby go from like three, four, five centimeters to baby in an hour, a couple hours all the time. But there was this, it felt very heavy to them to know that they were in hard active labor, walked in or what felt like hard active labor were like three, four centimeters and they still both had their babies a couple hours later, but the mental load of that felt like a lot. I completely hear you. So I, I also had a student when I announced I was doing this podcast, I asked him like, what are your questions? And I had one student ask me about, she's not comfortable with a lot of hands in her vagina and she wanted to know about checking her own <laughs> cervix. I mean, who's not many people are like, here, I'm going to open my legs, go for it. Um, so she wanted yeah, to know about checking her own cervix. And I, I gave her a little bit of the info I had when I went down to the farm, they taught us how to check cervixes. And I'm like, and that was, you know, know, not being in labor and not trying to get around my belly. So what are your thoughts on self-examination? I was all for her getting to know her body, but if she doesn't really have any background, is she going to be able to, and she's in labor, is she going to be able to figure out the information needed? Um, I think that that's a, it's really hit and miss. Um, the cervix can change in really confusing ways when you're in labor. So even if you're familiar with your body when you're not in labor, it changes completely when you are. And even for someone who is checking, you know, like not going around your belly, checking, um, you know, while you're in the best position for it, it can still be really confusing. I mean, there've been times where like me and another experienced midwife actually got out of speculum because we're like, we cannot tell what the hell is going on in here. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's going to work for some people. Some people will be able to check and be like, oh yeah, I can feel that it's open, but you can't always, um, like the bag of waters can be really confusing Mm. if your cervix is post 
exterior, it's extremely confusing. And if you're squatting and you're trying to get around your big belly, you're not even going to be able to feel it. And I was like, where, like, how is she getting in there? Yeah. <laughs> because I mean, there are times that when someone, so if you change your position, like you as the pregnant person, change your position, say you're squatting instead of lying flat on your back, it changes how far down the baby's head feels and it changes the position of the cervix. And so if that's, um, you know, how you're trying to feel, it's going to feel different than, you know, to someone who is checking you while you're lying on your back. Like if I, if I know that someone, or if I assume that someone is not at least seven centimeters, I won't check them in the tub. I will definitely not check them while they're squatting or sitting on a birth stool. I will only check them while they're lying on their back because it's the most accurate way to get the uh, feel for what's going on. So I think that that's, it's a really tricky one. I mean, I don't discourage anyone from you know, like checking themselves if they want to, as long as their water's not broken. Um, but I don't think it's, it's not reliable across the board. And something else people ask about a lot too, is this, uh, purple, uh, stripe. Yeah. The purple line that's supposed to like creep up your butt crack as you're, as you're I've heard about that. I've never tried to look at it or examine that, but yeah, I've heard about that. Is it real? Is this a real thing? Well, you can sometimes, see a purple line yeah. sometimes, but that's not consistent either. And I've, I've been uh, laboring with people where I could see the line creeping up and it got to the top and she was still at four centimeters. And so when people say, you know, that there's any kind of a replacement for a cervical exam, I totally disagree with that because I've, you know, in practice, I've tried all the other ways that people are like, no, you don't need to do a cervical exam. And it's like, well, you can't really get around it. And yeah. And again, it does matter because you can't birth a baby through a closed cervix. And so, I mean, at some point, some, somebody, if things are not going smoothly and a baby's not just flying out of your body, at some point, someone might need to figure out exactly what's going on with the cervix. Yeah, Cause it's important. Yeah, it I, might I be, mean, I, we really talked about like, it's, we can really gather great information that can help that can really, that can kind of be mm-hmm. like, Oh, this is why things aren't progressing. Like I remember with my son, yeah. his head was slightly asynclitic. So we can kind of tell because things were not progressing, you know, besides me being a doula and I had a doula and a midwife, like we figured something was up, but it yeah. gave the information that, okay, there's a lip. So we could figure out with this information, we can take these steps. So I, I like that we're highlighting it's, you know, it doesn't have to be a negative thing, but let's talk a little bit something you mentioned, the linear or non-linearness of, of mm-hmm. what happens. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. let's throw in what we talked about, Friedman's curve. Oh, Friedman's curve. <laughs> Oh, yes. We're excited. I I can only speak for myself. I am excited. (laughs) All right, Allie. Go. It's your turn. Um, Okay. So for a long time, birthing people, especially in America, I don't know if it went beyond America, but in the U.S., birthing people have been held to this standard of labor progress of what's quote-unquote normal for how quickly a cervix should dilate and a baby should be born. And so it was. it's called the Friedman's Curve, and it was based on a study published in 1955 by a Dr. Emanuel Friedman. And what he did was study, he was an OB, so it was based on his observation of 500 Caucasian patients at a single hospital, presumably all his. So he um, basically graphed how often, uh, or, or he would do cervical checks and he graphed the change and how long it took for each person or each woman to dilate 
centimeter by centimeter. And then he extrapolated from that graph and came up with this curve to define what is normal and what should be the pace of labor. So the conclusion was that first-time birthers should need about 14 hours to go from zero to 10 centimeters dilated and multips, or if you've already in had a In a bad, dream world. I yeah, just want to like, like interject right now yeah, and say in a dream 14 world. 14 hours. And it was eight <laughs> hours for what he called experienced mothers or, or it wasn't their first baby. So first of all, like, yeah, that'd be great. But I uh, like, so not what I have seen and, and most of us have seen in practice for many people. Um, and so what this started, this curve and this uh, kind of acceptance of this being the norm, we really started looking at this in the early 2000s, like 2010-ish, um, because there's so many people that were ending up with cesareans for a quote-unquote failure to progress. And so finally what ACOG, which the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, they kind of set the the rules or the standards for OBs in this country, said in, I believe it was 2012 and 20, reaffirmed it in 2014, was that that is, we should not be holding people to that curve that labor, quote unquote, normal labor does not need to progress that quickly. And we should <laughs> not be sending people to <laughs> da, cesareans da, da. if they're not dilating one centimeter per hour in active labor, which is what he said was normal. So, um, yeah, I hate it. And <laughs> <laughs> I hate it too. Yeah. I, I feel the same way about weight gain in pregnancy. Cause they're like a pound a week yeah, and it's totally. more like you don't gain anything in the beginning or you gain a ton in the beginning because eating either makes you feel horrible or better. Yeah. And then you have like a 10 pound weight gain one month. And it's kind of the same way with dilation where uh, with a first time parent, I usually tell them if they have their baby under 30 in under 36 hours, I'm ecstatic. And yeah. in that 36 hours, it's not like people are dilating like a quarter of a centimeter an hour. It's usually like the first, you know, 24 hours of that is just getting to six centimeters because getting to six centimeters takes way longer than getting from six to 10. Mm -hmm. And not that you can't, not that you can't have a stall in labor at any time because some people will stall eight or nine centimeters or even 10 centimeters. Their contractions will just go kaput and they'll, you know, if they're not medicated, (laughs) yeah, they're not medicated or they're nowhere where Pitocin is to be found, then they might just hang out at 10 centimeters without contractions for a few hours. Like that happens occasionally. It's not common, but, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, usually it takes way longer to get to six centimeters and then six to 10 can go really quickly. I'm so glad you're saying this because I do feel like people have an expectation of that. It has to just keep progressing and and keep progressing as, as opposed to like slow and methodic, like it could, you know, slowly keep going and it doesn't have to follow a certain pattern. So that's great that you're saying this, but how does somebody approach and talk to their care provider before? Beforehand, I'm all about the beforehand, not the during. About expectations. I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, preventative not, approach. <laughs> yeah, it's not, labor is not the time to negotiate. In my thought, no, yeah. no. Well, I think that what this could be would be a really great determining factor for whether or not this care provider is right for you. Right. So you know, you might not be able to change your care provider's mind if they think no, you should have a first baby within 14 hours, yeah. according to this outdated information by Mr. Friedman. Who's apparently alive and kicking and very upset. Yeah, I shared before we started recording that as I was like refreshing my my memory on all this stuff, I did some research this morning and found out that when a 
Kellogg made these statements a couple of years ago being like, yeah, this isn't what we're going by anymore. He, Dr. Friedman, is furious <laughs> and does not agree and thinks that everybody should still follow this. So, um, But I think to answer your question, people should be asking um, important questions like, is there, to their care provider, is there a standard amount of time that you insist on doing cervical exams or... If is there a certain amount of progress that you expect or or require your laboring patients to make before you suggest interventions like augmenting with pitocin or going to a cesarean? Like what? Just getting a sense of what their normal practice is. Um, do you believe in Friedman's curve? <laughs> like, are you holding? You know, <laughs> do you have um, a poster from behind you? So let's figure out. <laughs> totally, yeah. Do, you do have I? A, do I need to drive to New Mexico to have a baby <laughs> in the same place? <laughs> um, yeah. So just knowing and, and asking, also like, what is their standard for their practice on how often they want to do cervical exams and is for them, is there ever just a subjective or like a, an objective amount of time that if this amount of time has passed with no progress, you're definitely having a cesarean or we're definitely doing this. Um, assuming that the baby and the person giving birth are healthy and well and vitals are good and the person laboring has strength and energy to keep going. Um, I am of the mind that if all of those things are in place and everyone is safe, then I don't think that there should be an objective, like you have this amount of time and then that's it kind of thing. It, it It's a more dynamic picture than that. I love that. And again, going back to ask ahead of time, because some I've really worked yes. with care providers that they do have a certain expectation of progress and then it just gets bumpy. And luckily, you know, they had an advocate, you know, I was their dual, they had an advocate to help, but if, especially if, if, if a couple's on their own or even for the birthing person's yeah. on her own, it's a really hard place to negotiate. And often they don't feel that empowered to do so in a, in a typical hospital setting by themselves. So yeah, let's just yes. put that out there as a conversation ahead of time. So I'm and looking if you yeah. have, sorry, I just want okay, to say please. if you have, I know that everybody doesn't have choices with their care provider, um, or, or the ability to switch, but ask these questions early and ask, get a doula. Obviously I'm a huge fan, <laughs> but if you can't get a doula, ask around and ask people in the birth community in each town and each city, they're going to know who are like the great supportive care providers and who are the ones that they wouldn't take their ailing dog to like <laughs> you, right? Like there, that's a thing. So ask people who know and, and do your research. Do your research and do it early. And switching care providers can be a re can be overwhelming, can be difficult. It is so worth the effort if you can switch to somebody who you are not going to have to fight with because you deserve to have a supported experience where interventions are only suggested when they are medically necessary, not because of some subjective rule or or you know a person's preference. Oh, yeah. I love that. 100%. So I was looking through my questions. We got through so much. Is there anything I have not asked about the cervix that you think we need to talk about? <laughs> oh, Gosh. The cervix. You know, I don't think I mentioned that getting, getting positive news from a cervical check can be so encouraging yes. and can really change the mood and change the course of labor. I mean, Allie and I had a mutual client where 
uh, Allie was pretty sure she was still just like, you know, two centimeters <laughs> and everyone was depressed. And I got there and she was like, please check me. And so I did. And she was six centimeters. And all of a sudden she was like coping great. Yep. There's a and total she was shift. So good. And so sometimes it's actually really good to know, but that's individual and it's just based on the moment. And if you want to know something, you'll know you want to know. And yeah. If you don't want to know, you don't want to know. Totally. And I want to defend myself there to say that I didn't say that out loud in front of (laughs) our client. I took Carly aside and was like, we are all so tired. She came out and met me at the gate. She was like, queen. We need help. I need help. Well, sometimes, you know, we have kind of these emotional signposts of labor and sometimes people just are not. Like, I remember having a client, we got there and she finally got into her room and she was talking to me as if, you know, like I thought maybe early labor. She was just talking to me. I walk in and she's like, I'm nine centimeters, still just like talking, yes. just like, yep. <laughs> like I Hopefully. would not have guessed that. I had a birth like that <laughs> yeah. this week and it was, I was their doula the first time too. And like four years ago, they had their first baby. She was, I will never forget. She was eight centimeters, taking a shower in the hospital, <laughs> hanging her upper body out of the shower, eating a piece of pepperoni pizza, chatting oh, I love her. at eight centimeters. Wow. And so we all like, were joking. Like, I wonder if it'll be like that again. And she had a, a pretty quick labor this time, but she totally was like chatty and jokey the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, so, everyone's never different. know. You should you should never have a, a clear expectation of what your birth is going to be like. Yeah, you just you just don't know. You don't know. And the same yep. person could have two very different births. My first was about forty two hours. My second was about four. I mean, yeah, same right. body. There you go. <laughs> two very different children. <laughs> Dude, those are the best second births. Oh, was that oh, so like, great? Wow, yeah. not feel good. I do love a second birth. You're like, statistically, you're going to be a little quicker. All right. So we're going to take a super yeah, quick yes. break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you, we both can throw in a one piece or tip at a one tip or piece of advice you would like to offer for new or expectant parents. We'll be right back. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Okay. And we're back. So what do you want to lay out there? Oh man. Do you have something off the top of your head queen? I'm kind of, Oh my, I have go-tos. Absolutely. What's your go-to for, for new parents? I always say like pick a care provider that you feel really comfortable with and then have very fluid expectations and hopes for your, for your birth. Just, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Like learn, learn as much as you can, as much as is helpful for you. Mm-hmm. And then just understand that you can influence your birth, but you can't control it. I was going to be mine. It's such a good one. <laughs> it's mine. I came up with that saying, I use it as much as possible. Um, but yeah, I, I really believe in that because I feel like that is the best thing to reduce birth trauma, mm-hmm. which is the best thing to do to enhance your bond bonding with your baby, enhance your experience and yeah, overall just feels, well, feel more satisfied with your birth. Like we talked with somebody a couple weeks ago about how loss of control of your labor doesn't mean loss of consent. And I think it's really important to differentiate and, uh, and to put your expectations more on consent and information rather than putting your expectations on 
performing because this is an involuntary process and no one should ever feel like I need to perform or I failed at my birth. No one should ever feel like that because most of the birth depends on the baby. Absolutely. I love that. Yes. Beautifully said. I think my, the only thing I would add to that is that a lot of, you are so worth investing in this experience. And that means a lot of times that means spending a lot of time and energy and oftentimes extra money to get the information and the support for your birth experience. And I know a lot of families can feel overwhelmed or a little burdened by that, but I promise it is so worth it. Like we spend more money in this country, more time and energy and money researching like our next flat screen TV than we do on the kind of birth experience that we want or care provider or birth education. And so I just like to empower people that like, this is worth it. And what we do matters at this time of life for, for us and for our babies. Oh, everything. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Where can people (laughs) find your work? Um, we have our podcast, the birth Queens podcast, and it's K W E E N S. And I'll have it in the show notes. Perfect. Um, so we have our website, birthqueens.com, and then you can find the podcast anywhere that podcasts are available. And we're on Instagram as well. And we have a private Facebook group, the birth Queens podcast community. Um, we're both on Instagram. What mm-hmm. tell, what else am I missing? Allie Farrell. We both have websites. So if yeah. people are in the San Diego area and want to work with us, they can. Yep. We can, I'll send you, um, the links for all that. If you want to include in the yes, show notes. Yes, I Deb. certainly will. Oh, it has been such a joy and pleasure to talk with you guys. And we're so on the same page with so much. So I'm literally sitting here like, yes, shaking my head. I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I want <laughs> yeah, the community to know. It feels so good. It, it does. does. When you find like-minded people oh it's the best yeah I know. it's oh. so fun talking to you Deb thank yeah. you so thank much you, well thank you go enjoy your day <laughs> be well be you will too. thank Bye. you this has been an episode of yoga birth babies produced by prenatal yoga center you can catch us on facebook twitter instagram and periscope i'm Deb Flaschenberg. thanks for listening